into the Word of God. As promised, we have our last Jesus video to show you guys. Um, so let's do this first. <laughs> Can you hit play for me? What in the name of me is going on in here? There's that. There's that. You're not supposed to be having fun. You're supposed to be praying and reading your Bible. And you guys. How do you expect to get to heaven by playing board games? Repeat after me. Thee before thou, except after thine. Hope you don't think you're going to the dance on Friday. <clears throat> oh no. There are those Pharisee thugs stirring up trouble. Let's go check it out. <clears throat> yes, my associate and I were wondering. That is to say, we were hoping you could get us into heaven. We know a lot of Bible verses. And as you can see, we're very nicely dressed. Mm, how much money do you have? Oh, there you go. Mm. One coin. Are you serious? Well, I can, I can get you more. No, I'm sorry. You'll never get into heaven now. You, you had your chance and you blew it. Well, I guess I'll be going then. That sucker doesn't even realize I kept his coin. Okay. The weekly disclaimer is always in order. This is not really who Jesus is. Um, this is to make fun of um, bad portraits that we present of Christ, right? Okay. And even with that disclaimer, it's still a little sacrilegious. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, okay, so let me uh, have you guys turn with me to John chapter 12 uh, this morning, and I'm going to pray for us. Holy Spirit, we just invite you to come and make Jesus known to us, who makes the Father known to us. And we ask that um, this time would be, uh, would be something in your hands um, as a potter to shape us uh, more into the image of Christ. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So uh, I want to be preaching today from John 12, um, and I'll particularly be reading verses 19 through 26. But let me give you guys a little bit of the backdrop here. So um, all this momentum has been building to this story that I'm going to get to. Uh, and it particularly began building when Jesus went to a town uh, called Bethany, which is just, it's essentially a suburb of Jerusalem. It was just two miles outside of Jerusalem. And in that town, he raises from the dead a guy who's been dead for several days named Lazarus. And when Lazarus is raised from the dead, it causes quite a stir. Um, because people from Jerusalem are coming to Bethany, because it's just right outside the city, and, um, and they're hearing about what's happening. So in verse um, 9 and 10 of chapter 12, let me read it for you. It says, When the large uh, crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So the Pharisees not only wanted to kill Jesus, they wanted to kill Lazarus because he was a, a living proof of the power of Christ, right? 
And so on the heels of that, Jesus then leaves Bethany. There's already a crowd of people gathering in Bethany, and then he comes into Jerusalem in what is the triumphal entry, right? And large crowds meet him there, and then they do something kind of unprecedented. They begin declaring that he is the king of Israel. And then we come to verse 19, um, and we read these words in verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world is going after him. Verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. All right. So let's talk about this story. These Greeks come to Jesus. They come to Philip asking to see Jesus. Um, There's some thought about who these Greeks might be. Um, Some people suggest that they're actually not Greeks. They're actually Greek-speaking Jews because there are a lot of Jews all throughout the Greek-speaking world, many of whom were worshipers of Yahweh, the God of Israel, and they would come to Passover. They would come to festivals in Jerusalem like Passover, which is this week. And so it could be them. And other people actually think that they could be this group of people that's well attested to at this time, known as the God-fearers. And God-fearers were Gentiles who were worshipers of the God of Israel. They were converts to the God of Israel. And they typically were supporters of the synagogue and their local town and things like that. Cornelius in the book of Acts is an example of one of these Gentile God-fearers. And so I actually think that that's who we've got going on here. These are actual Greeks. Um, not just Greek-speaking Jews, who have come to worship at the Feast of of Passover. And I can just imagine um, Philip's eyes just getting big as, you know, all this momentum's building. He has all the momentum of Lazarus getting raised. The The crowds of Jerusalem meet him as he enters the city. And now Gentiles are even clamoring to see Jesus. And so Philip goes off to talk to Andrew about this. And they're just like, this is it. We hit the big time. Jesus' ministry is international. We can say we were there at this seminal moment. And so they run off and they go uh, find Jesus. And they say, Jesus, even the Greeks want to meet with you. So when should we tell them it's a good time for you? The time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour of my glorification. Ooh, I like the sound of that. That's got a nice ring to it. The hour of your glorification. I like this. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Okay, not sure we are going with the dying seed metaphor. I like what you just said about the hour of your glorification. Let's, let's stick with that, that messaging. And whoever loves his life loses it, guys. Whoever hates Uh, His life in this world, for my sake, keeps it for eternal life. So that's a yes to the Greeks then? Is that, am I hearing you right, Jesus? 
And I can just imagine, you know, them going back to the disciples, and they're like, so we heard the Greeks want to meet with Jesus. It's like, when is this going to happen? Uh, I don't, I'm not sure exactly. Um, he's got a certain hour in mind in which he's going to be glorified, so that sounds pretty cool. Stay tuned on that. Then he said something about a lonely seed. Not entirely sure where he's going with that. The text isn't actually clear whether or not Jesus meets with these Jews. I think that it's implied that he doesn't actually meet with them. And I think we'll see why as the text goes on. So in this metaphor that Jesus gives, right, he's kind of calling to mind the fact that uh, when a seed falls into the ground, um, it shoots sprouts, right, from the body of the fallen seed, as it were. And the grave of the seed becomes the beginning of that plant's life cycle, one which will eventually produce fruit if it's a fruit-bearing plant, which is obviously the kind of plant that Jesus has in mind for this metaphor. And as long as the seed, though, is, is kept from the earth, um, it'll never produce life. It will remain alone and never be anything but a seed. In John's gospel, Jesus repeatedly refers to his crucifixion as the hour of his glorification, which is a striking phrase given the fact that crucifixion was the epitome of shame in the Roman world. But Jesus won't be a seed that remains alone. His death is his pursuit of men, women, and children. I love how in verse 19, he, he talks about how the whole world's coming after him. That is, his, that is his heart. The Pharisees are recognizing this. A few chapters earlier in John 10, he says he identifies himself as the good shepherd that lays down his life for the sheep. And his concern in John 10 isn't only for the lost sheep of Israel. He speaks also about the sheep from another fold that he's going to bring in, that there might be one flock. And by doing so, he's talking about the Gentiles. Gentiles like these Greeks that two chapters later come asking to see Jesus. Gentiles like you and Gentiles like me. And his cross then opens the way for Jesus to have that international ministry that his disciples want for him, though not perhaps as they envisioned it. And in verse uh, I think Jesus says exactly this um, a few verses later in the same chapter in um, John 12, 32 and 33. He says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And then John says, He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. I've noticed sometimes this verse can be taken a little out of context. Uh, typically, in the sense of like, if we just wor really worship hard today on Sunday morning, if we just exalt Jesus, lift up the name of Jesus in our song, then he'll draw people in Birmingham to himself. Um, that may be true, I don't know, but it's technically not what this verse is talking about. Uh, to be lifted up, and verse 33 makes it pretty clear, is, a, is an idiom to be crucified. And so Jesus is actually declaring, this is my altar call to the world. This right here, me raised on a cross, naked and bleeding. That's how I've determined to draw humanity. Not through these other means. Not through the ways that people currently feel drawn to me. That's how I'm going to draw them. And that's why I'm probably not going to meet with the Greeks right now. And I think that um, Jesus is declaring, this is where I want to be seen as king. In verse 19, he says, look, the whole world, uh, the Pharisees say, the world's going after him. And I think that's meant to set up verse 20 that says the Greeks are wanting to see him. And I think the point is this, that Jesus is saying, I, 
I want the Greeks to see me, but not because I meet their public expectations as the kind of king they want, um, not because I'm some miracle worker. Um, I want them to see me not in that light, but I want them to see me ultimately and embrace me ultimately from the cross. That's where I've determined to be seen and hailed as king. And I don't have to tell you guys that the phrase Jesus, king of the Jews, was written above the head of Christ on the cross um, in the inscription above his head. But maybe you do or don't know that in this gospel, in John's gospel, he makes a point to tell us that Jesus, king of the Jews, was written in Aramaic, the language of Israel, and in Latin, and in Greek. Philip, Andrew, I want the Greeks to see me. But not because large crowds met me as I entered Jerusalem today. Not because I'm the guy who raised from the dead someone in Jerusalem suburb. First and foremost, I want them to see my sacrificial love. I've determined to draw them this way. And I want them to know, as Jesus says a few verses later, that everything I do is for my Father's glory. And I don't draw the line on that anywhere, not even if my own death is required. And I think Jesus is saying, I want them to have revelation to see the hour of my crucifixion, not as the hour of my shame, but as the hour of my glorification. I'm going to draw these Greeks and all peoples to myself, and I'm going to do it through sacrificial love. Uh, an old Chinese scholar once, after hearing the, this story of the self-sacrificing God for the first time, turned and exclaimed to his neighbor and said, didn't I tell you there ought to be a God like that? And this is exactly what this passage is doing. The cross appeals to the highest parts of humanity. Because somehow intuitively we know that the greatest God, the most glorious God, is not the God that only ever demands servitude and sacrifice. The greatest God that could possibly exist is one that actually models service for his servants. It's one that actually displays sacrificial love, not just demands it. And, and humanity knows that if there is the, great, the greatest God that could possibly exist would be this kind of God. There ought to be a God like that. that. And that's exactly what Jesus is appealing to in verse 32 when he says, if I be crucified, that's how I'm going to draw them. All peoples, not just Jews, not just Greeks, all peoples. Because all of us have that seated in us. That would be the most glorious God. There ought to be a God like that, brothers and sisters. And there is. His name is Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, born, uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. And I think it's important as we think of this, this God-man, fully God, fully man, as, as Pastor Bart preached last week, that we keep this, this, this Jesus, who is the center of all that we do, that frames our discipleship, rooted and grounded in history. That this is a historical story. Because if we don't, guess what? Everything we believe collapses into idealism. Happy ideas, positive ideas, Christian ideas, but just ideas. And this is why I think things like the ancient creeds, like the Apostles' Creed, really help us. Because it grounds what we, our conviction that there ought to be a God like this and more than my own little conviction, right? 
What's the creed doing when it says that he suffered under Pontius Pilate? It's rooting it, the death of Christ, in history. Not in the world of ideas. In this world, in our world, in Israel, on a hill outside Jerusalem, Christ suffered under a historical Roman governor named Pontius Pilate. That's what it's doing. It's anchoring the death of Christ in history because my faith may be abstract, but the object of my faith is anything but abstract. We've got to keep our story grounded in history where things like the creed have always told Christians to do. It's real. It's this world. He walked this earth until a historical Roman governor named Pontius Pilate ordered his execution. Two days passed, and then he walked this earth again for another 40 days, at which time he ascended to the right hand of the Father. Hopefully you guys are looking forward to Scott's message next week on the resurrection of Christ. When, uh, when, when Pastor Bart introduced this series to us, this I Believe series on the Apostles' Creed, he talked about what he termed the ABCDs of the Creed and how the Creed um, assists us in spiritual formation. It balances us so that we don't overemphasize some things and deemphasize other things that are core truths of our faith. Um, it creates Christian community um, globally, actually, and even across the centuries. How many of you guys know that we're connected to a body of Christ that's also not currently living, right? It's in the heavens. Um, we're united by these truths. And also, it directs our steps. Um, and I want to talk this morning about uh, two of those, how the creed assists us in spiritual formation and how it directs our steps, and particularly how the message of the cross does this. Um, let's look at verse 25, because I think this is what Jesus is doing here. He says, he says these startling words. <laughs> Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Why does Jesus use the words love and hate here? I think it's because ultimately spiritual formation gets at your heart your heart values and motivations, your affections, y'all, your passions. It can't not. What do you love? What do you hate? What gets you out of bed in the morning? What keeps you in bed in the morning? Why do you need that raise? Why do your kids need to get that grade or play those sports? These things, these values, these affections, these desires, they govern our actions and they, they motivate our decisions. And Jesus is essentially saying a love infatuation with this world breeds death. And by contrast to allegiance to me as my follower, you should hate every other claim of, on your allegiance in this world. As Christians... When we talk about spiritual formation, in many ways we're just talking about discipleship. Specifically, growing as disciples of Christ in whose image we're to be formed spiritually. And Jesus said things like this. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot 
be my disciple. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Make no doubt about it. Um, I'm sure we could talk about uh, you know, spiritual formation without talking about the cross. It just wouldn't be Christian formation. To be a Christian, to be a follower of Christ, is to embrace a journey through the cross in our formation. And that shapes the way we think of suffering, and it shapes the way we think about something called self-denial. Um, so at one level, cross-bearing means enduring whatever shame and scorn comes our way for the sake of Christ, the kingdom of God, the gospel. Um, I actually won't have time to talk about that component today, but I wanted to put it out there. Um, and then at another level, cross-bearing means embracing the daily struggle to learn self-denial. A few years ago, um, I had a conversation with a guy downtown um, he, he lived on the streets. He was an alcoholic. His name was Lonnie. Um, I actually really always liked Lonnie. He was um, just really funny and actually delightful to be around. And uh, so one, one morning I was talking to Lonnie, and Lonnie goes, I love Jesus. I, I love Jesus. I mean, I do what I want, but I love Jesus. He said it again, like, I mean, don't get me wrong, Gabe. I do what I want. But I love Jesus. And then I, th I think he said it like a third time. And uh, I was like, did you know, Lonnie, that, that Jesus said, if you love me, you obey my commands? Hmm. Um, you know, if we're going to take what Pastor Bart said last week, if we're going to take the lordship, uh, or two weeks ago, I think, the lordship of Jesus seriously, then we have got to learn uh, that we can't, gratify ourselves in whatever we want, whenever we want it. You know, part of the reason I wasn't too hard on Lonnie that day is because there's a Lonnie in all of us. I love Jesus. I mean, I, I do what I want whenever I want to. But I love Jesus, right? Um, I think that's in us all. How can we become better followers of Jesus? Well, learning self-denial is going to be key. It's got to be key. Um, Self-denial is an essential aspect of putting off the old self and putting on the new self. And first, um, and I think the reason why is because self-denial can lead to self-sacrificing for others. The first step is not always gratifying your desires. That's self-denial. And from there, uh, Christ calls us to live and love sacrificially in the lives of others in ways that are redemptive. That's what it does. That's cross-bearing. That's cross-shaped spiritual formation. And Jesus knew this, of course, which is why he not only modeled it for us perfectly, by the way, but he rooted this into the very call of discipleship, of spiritual formation. There's no way around it. Um, I love Jesus, but I do what I want, says your inner Lonnie. We hate self-denial by nature. Whoever loves his life loses it. What? You're killing me here, Jesus? Yes, Gabriel. Yes, I am. I want you to experience that which is truly life. Are you willing to be a seed that falls to the ground more and more so that you might bear fruit in the lives of others? If not, 
you'll remain alone like a seed that's kept from the earth. I love this quote by E. Stanley Jones. He says this, This is the meaning of the cross. We, being what we are, and God, being what he is, he could not keep out of it. And since God has gone into life as deeply as a cross, we too must catch the divine passion. We must know the cross by sharing it. I love that line. Since God has gone into life as deeply as a cross. So so powerful. Um, Let's talk about how the cross directs our steps. Well, Jesus, of course, goes there next, conveniently for my passage. Um, He says in verse 26, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, my servant will be also. Um, a few weeks ago, I was, uh, it was a rainy morning, and I'm teaching right now at uh, Highlands College, uh, two Bible classes, and I was on my way to teach my class. It was rainy. I got behind uh, one car uh, fender bender, which delayed me, and then a few minutes down the road, I got behind another fender bender, which delayed me even more, and I had to drop Adeline off at my parents' house. Um, so I ended up being 10 minutes late to my own class, and it was incredibly embarrassing, but Anyway, I found myself, like, behind this car, and I'm like, come on, come on, come on, um, and I'm, you know, riding them, and, uh, and I see this, like, you know, little tiny bumper sticker on uh, their back um, windshield, and, and I was like, what does this say to read, do you follow Jesus this close? <laughs> I thought, touche. <laughs> Um, you know, I think, first of all, I would totally have that bumper sticker on my car. But that bumper sticker reminds me in many ways of so much of how uh, my early years of being a Christian felt. That, yeah, I'm following 20 other things closer than I'm following Jesus, and I'm never following Jesus close enough. And just kind of living in that constant shame of never following Jesus close enough. Um, you know, we're not great followers. Hopefully, we're becoming better followers. We're not very Christ-like. Hopefully, we're becoming more Christ-like over time. Um, hold on to that thought, because I want to come back to it. Sir, we wish to see Jesus, the Greeks asked Philip. I believe that there are spiritually curious people in your life that are asking you that question. They may not be literally asking you that question, but in different ways, they are. They're asking it with the brokenness of their lives, the shame of their past. They're asking it with the chaos of their soul and the unreconciled heart that they have before God. And without saying it aloud, they are silently asking, Sir, ma'am, we wish to see Jesus. Some of you have likely heard that the 20th century Indian independence activist uh, Mahatma Gandhi was actually originally intrigued by Christianity. I, re- I really should say he was intrigued by Jesus. So he, he read the four Gospels. And after reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he was fascinated by Jesus. And so one day he decided to go to church. So he found a church in Calcutta, India, and really, I think, walked up to the ushers of that church with that question, that desire on his heart, Sir, I wish to see Jesus. I've read about him. 
I'm intrigued by him. And sadly, the ushers greeted him at the door and told him, this church is only for Indians who are of a higher caste or white people. All people of lower caste or non-whites, both boxes Gandhi checked, can't worship here. And Gandhi walked away from the church that day and never looked back, rejected Christianity from then on. Um, that day, I think he came to church with that question on his heart. I want to see Jesus. Can someone show me Jesus? Um, and sadly, like those ushers, oftentimes, as Christians, our actions usher people away from the presence of Jesus rather than into the presence of Jesus. Gandhi famously said this, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Can I confess something? I've always had mixed feelings when I've heard this Gandhi quote. Now, Gandhi was perfectly entitled to feel this way about Christians and how we don't measure up to Jesus. But I've heard this quote used in the church. I've heard it uh, in multiple sermons. I've heard it in podcasts. I've heard it even in like lectures. Gandhi saying, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And I've had, I've had mixed feelings about it, if I can just be honest. Um, yes, those ushers at the church in Calcutta were certainly quite unlike Christ. But, some people would say, there were other people in Calcutta that were certainly at least more Christ-like than those ushers, not least of which would be Mother Teresa, but I don't think that's really the point. The point isn't, ooh, I'm sorry you had that experience with that lousy Christian. Yeah, we got our hypocrites, but we've got this shining example. We've got our Mother Teresa's and our Larry Powell's, wherever you are, Larry. We've got some, like, we've got some, some saints we could point to that just serve their whole life and are a, 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 an example of Christ to us. That's not really the point. The point isn't, Sorry you had that experience with that lame Christian. We've got some better ones. Because here's the idea. We're never meant to replace Christ. You and I can't become, nor should we even try to become, Christ-like enough to where people no longer recognize that Jesus is far superior to you or me or any saint we could point to. Christ is the best thing about Christianity, not the caliber of Christian we can produce. Even the holiest among us is a crude reflection of Jesus himself. And I don't hesitate to include Mother Teresa in that statement, even though her level of self-denial far exceeds any of us in this room. Again, it kind of throws me back on that bumper sticker, right? We're just never following Jesus close enough. We weren't able to impress Gandhi if only Gandhi had bumped into Mother Teresa's ministry that day instead of those ushers. I don't think that's really the point. Although we do want to strive to be more like Christ. We do want to follow Jesus closer. Ultimately, how do we respond? When people say, sir, ma'am, we wish to see Jesus, as they asked Philip. How do we show them Jesus? Is it the case that we show them Jesus by being as perfectly Christ-like as possible? And they go, whoa, man, there's Jesus. I see Jesus in you. I think that there's a component of that. 
that we show Jesus to the world by increasing in Christ-likeness. But I think if we live under that too much, then essentially what we live under is, do you follow Jesus this close? And we know we don't so much of the time. I think Jesus is best shown where he declares himself to be shown. John 12, 26, he says that he's found among his servants. As we serve Christ, hear me, as you and I serve Christ, we imperfectly mediate Christ's presence to those around us who are silently asking, we wish to see Jesus. We do this not as perfect ambassadors, but as flawed ambassadors. And I think that's how they see the cross. Do you see what I'm saying? As we serve Christ, we do so as servants who are desperately clinging to the Jesus who's restoring the brokenness in our lives. Who's healing the shame of our past and present. Who's calming the chaos of our soul. And as we celebrate a heart reconciled to God, the very things that are prompting the question in them are the very things that we are daily recipients of. And I think as we show them that, as we show them our vulnerability, not our perfection, as we show them our need, that we're not people who have graduated from Jesus, we do what? We point people away from ourselves and back to the cross. Back to John 12, 32, the very place that Jesus has determined to draw humanity because there ought to be a God like that. And that's what we are declaring to the world when we're able to say, I need him. I need him. I want to be more like him. I want to be more like him. I'm sorry you, and, we can, and you can't apologize. I, I think it's really popular right now, especially among millennials, to tell people who are jaded with the church, oh, I'm really sorry you had that guy in your fraternity who said he was a Christian. I'm really sorry that you had that bad experience um, as a child in Sunday school where your Sunday school teacher made fun of you or something for not knowing a Bible verse. Like, I think it's fine for us to apologize for the failings of Christianity. But I think it's important we do this. When we do that, we're not necessarily saying, hopefully we're not saying, but have you seen her? Have you seen him? Certainly not, have you seen me? It should be, yes, we're a, we are a bunch of flawed ambassadors. Have you seen Jesus? Gandhi, have you seen Jesus? As it were. And I think that's how we respond to that question. Some of you guys may be saying, I'm a Christian and I want to see Jesus. I don't feel like I see Jesus. My answer to you is the same. Find Jesus where he claims to be found. Find him among his servants. Find him among these servants. I'm going to invite the, the team back up, and let me pray for us. And then Scott's going to um, share some announcements with us. God, I just ask that um, you would just call us out, Lord. I thank, you, I thank you for those words from E. Stanley Jones that you 
went into life as deeply as a cross in that we too must catch the divine passion. Lord, would you, would you thrill our hearts with the call to deny ourselves, to love sacrificially, but never in a way that is legalistic, in a way that we live under this constant, I'm never following close enough, I'm never like Jesus enough. God, I thank you that we never replace your son. <laughs> we never replace Jesus. You are supreme, Jesus, in every way. And so we worship you today. We thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. We thank you that from there we see your love. And God, I ask that you would propel us into the world to serve and love and mediate you imperfectly as we do, as broken vessels in need of grace. And that people would see Jesus in our lives that you are restoring. They would see the need for a Savior in our lives because we need a Savior. Would you do this, Lord? This is the gospel. This is living out the gospel. Would you do this in our community, in our faith family here at Fullness? In Jesus' name, amen.